All right, continuing this morning, just another light sermon out of Amos. This morning, Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, as we continue in this series, and the fixed eye of the Lord. Now, by this point, we should understand, after however many months we've been in arriving here at chapter 9, we should understand that the condition that Israel finds themselves in is because the the sin of Jeroboam I was not your run-of-the-mill paganism that existed in so much of the rest of the land of Cana and even in Israel herself, but was something very specific. These were people that decided to reinvent the Lord as they thought they needed Him to be for their purposes and in doing so remove the immutable standard of righteousness with a Yahweh sticker stuck on it from the midst of the people and as they did, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom, and she plunged into the vilest of depravities. And it all starts with Jeroboam standing at an altar. And starting Amos chapter 9 this morning, we find a very different king standing at an altar. And in chapter 9, verse 1, the prophet writes and says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Now at this point, we've had a pretty rough ride with Amos as the Lord has told him what is coming upon Israel for their sin. And this all started before a blasphemous altar that was the expression of the evil heart of King Jeroboam I. And if you guys remember from way back at the very beginning of this study, you see the record of those events in 1 Kings in chapter 12 and 13. In the book of 1 Kings in chapter 12, we see the heart of Jeroboam the new king of the northern kingdom of Israel. In chapter 12 and verse 25 through 28, we see the reasoning of Jeroboam's heart that led us to the events of Amos chapter 9. It says in verse 25 that when Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there to build Penuel, and Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And so the king took counsel, and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel. Literally, behold your Elohim, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And instead of turning them towards Baal or towards Asherah or any of the other multitude of pagan demon deities that were available at their disposal that said, that's not your God, this is your God. Instead, what he did was he raised up these false gods in the name of the one true God and says this, not the one in Jerusalem, is actually the one who led you by fire and by cloud, who led you through the sea, who brought water from the rock and spoke to you from the mountain. This is thy Elohim that brought you forth out of Egypt. And out of the evil intention of his heart, 
He acted blasphemously before an altar. Just down the page in chapter 13 and verses 1 through 4, it says, Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel, and Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king, that being Jeroboam, when he heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying to seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. Everything that we read in Amos, the hundreds of years of consequence and the judgment that is at hand to come, all started with an evil-hearted king standing before a blasphemous altar making sacrifice. Now, a holy God with a righteous heart will stand beside his own altar and finish what Jeroboam started. In Amos chapter 9, verse 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword, and not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. The reality is, is that Israel chose the wrong altar and the wrong God to place their faith in. And now a holy God with a righteous heart will stand beside his altar and have his day. Now I want you to notice, if you look back through the visions of Amos, remember at the beginning of Amos it says that these are the visions of the Lord These are actually, this is the word of the Lord that Amos saw. So this is not the word of the Lord that he simply heard. This is the word of the Lord that Amos saw. And those visions begin in chapter 7 and move on into chapter 8 and now into chapter 9 where the Lord says, Amos, what do you see? And he tells the Lord what he sees and then the Lord speaks to him and tells him what it means and I want you to notice, if you've been with us in the last three chapters, through chapter 7, when you see the first two visions, into chapter 8, when you see the second two visions, and now the third vision in chapter 9, I want you to notice how God is progressively dominating the narrative as it moves forward. That is to say, when you look at chapter 8 and the two visions that are in chapter 8, Amos speaks more than God. God is speaking less than the prophet is speaking. And often, it's the prophet contending with God about how Israel can't handle what you're saying. By the time we get to chapter 8, there has been a movement. Amos speaks very little. And God is predominant in the narrative. As a matter of fact, basically the only things that Amos says in chapter 8 are simply to answer 
the inquiries that God makes of him. By the time we get to chapter 9, other than the editorial information so that you will know where God is standing and where he is speaking from at the very first clause of verse 1, Amos doesn't speak at all. And it's only God himself that speaks. One of the things that you will find about the maturing of the saints is when it comes time to study and prayer, it is often zealous young men who spend much time talking to God and about God and older men that spend much time listening to what God has to say about himself. And so as you watch this progression and the more Amos is exposed to what the Lord is showing him, the less and less he talks and the more and more the words of God himself dominate the narrative, you have to ask yourself why. And I think the answer is very clear in the book of Amos. As a matter of fact, in the Minor Prophets, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and pretty much Scripture as a whole, why is this happening in Amos? And the answer is, is because it's not about Amos. If it was about Amos, Amos would be doing all the talking. It's not about Amos. It's not even really about Israel. But instead, what it is, is about a holy God who is about to put his character on display for all of creation to see. In other words, what is happening with Israel is the result of the heart of God, in this case, hating something in Israel and I think this is a big and, and being willing to do something about it. What the book of Amos is about is, isn't about Amos and it isn't about Israel. It's about God. The things his character loves and the things opposed to that love that his character hates. And that as painful as it is, he is absolutely both capable and willing to do something about it. The Lord speaks in Amos of what is fueling the judgment that is at hand. And what is fueling the judgment at hand is not simply that there is some statute or rule being broken. It's not simply that I told you do this and not that, and you did that and not this, and so therefore there's a requirement here, there's a legal responsibility for me to act in justice. That is not what is going on in Amos. What is going on in Amos is a justice that is fueled by passion and desire of the heart of a holy God. He doesn't speak about any of it from a legalistic fashion. As a matter of fact, in Amos chapter 5, I would remind you in verse 21, he said, I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. And even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look on them. God says, I am so angry. I hate so much the things that you are doing. I despise your feast. I take no delight in your assemblies. And if you want to bring me a peace offering of fatted calves to make this better, I won't even look at it. He doesn't stop there. In chapter 6, he continues in verse 8 and says, The Lord is sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor, I abhor the pride of Jacob, and I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. In the book of Amos, in the book of Hosea, you see this very passionate desire 
that God has for his character and how it is causing the unfolding of these events. In the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 22, in verses 23 through 31, we see the Lord expound upon the details of why he feels this way. And so in Ezekiel 22, in verse 23, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to her, and this is to Israel, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in the midst of her is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in their midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they've disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Notice the point of him bringing all of this up is because not simply these things are the point, but in doing so leads to his name being profaned among them. And the name of God is not a profane name. It's a holy name and should be regarded as such. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lines for them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. Not only are the priests terrible, not only are the princes terrible, not only is the religion terrible, not only is the government terrible, but now the religion is making false whitewash to cover up the guilt of the government and say it's okay. He says, you've profaned my name. Oh, you have all the stuff. You have the solemn assemblies. You make the peace altars, offers, and you put my name on it and say, this is thy Elohim that led you out of Egypt and it has nothing to do with me. Guys, let me tell you something. One of the things that the prophets make clear is that God only has one side. God only has one side, and it's his own. And so, therefore, the question that you need to ask yourself when you find yourselves in time of doubt or travail is not, is God on my side? God's already chosen his side. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's not the Southern Baptist. It's not Mount Zion. It's, it, it's, it's not America. It's not NATO. God has chosen his side. And his side is his own. The question is not whether or not is God on my side. The question is, have I been taken captive to God's side? That's the question. Have I been taken captive to God's side by grace? Then I may not ask myself, is God on my side, but am I truly on his? Now what's going to happen in Amos chapter 9 is going to make the people of Israel have to ask that question in the most extreme of measures. 
Because moving on into verses 2 through 4, we see a holy God expounding upon the imminent display of His character in the midst of Israel. When this God shows up and shows Himself to be what He is and what His side is, that plumb line that He spoke to Amos about is not going to say good things about how Israel is true. In Amos chapter 9, verses 2 through 4, one of the most astounding, and I think, I hope you'll see this before we're done, one of the most astounding pieces of Scripture in the book of Amos. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And all of those who are left, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. There's the statement about what's coming. Now in verses 2 through 4 comes him expounding on what that's going to look like. Because I have a passionate hatred for your wicked ways that profane my name in your midst. And because you have the audacity to say that those evil things are me. This is the judgment that's coming, and here's what it looks like as it's unfolding. If they dig into Sheol, you, you know, I mean, obviously, chapter 9, verse 1 is like an insane threat, right? I mean, if a holy God says that to you, man, you got a couple options here. You can, you can beg forgiveness and plead mercy, or you can run. And he knows which one they're going to do. He says, if they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Okay. If you've been in church some of your life, most of your life, all of your life, even if you haven't been in church a lot, there is there's a chance that verses 2 through 4 will probably sound a little bit familiar to you. It almost never gets read. I mean, let's face it. People don't quote a lot of Amos, right? It's, it doesn't go well on, you know, coffee cups or calendars. It doesn't go well on the Jesus junk that they have at the front part of all the Bible bookstores, you know. that It, it just doesn't. I mean, there's just not, I mean look, man. Not, I won't say nobody. Not many people want a coffee cup that says, so many dead bodies, they're scattered everywhere. Silence. Nobody wants that on their coffee cup, right? And we shouldn't. I'm not saying we should. I mean, that's kind of the whole point, is this isn't supposed to be pleasant. This is the reflection of a holy God's response to sin, and we don't see sin as being near as, and I'm talking about me, as being nearly as evil or utterly sinful as it actually is. And it's books like Amos that show you what God's heart is about this stuff. Like, man, he ain't playing. Of course he's not playing. You think he, was, you think he sent his son to die because he was mildly irritated? <laughs> That's not how it goes. So you read this. And while you've probably unless you've done your read through your Bible in a year or something like that, or maybe we're fortunate enough to sit in on the rare study of Amos, 
you probably never actually heard this, or at least not heard it enough to be familiar, but there's something familiar about it. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. It sounds familiar because both grammatically and thematically, it is a near perfect negative image of what the same God had previously spoken to an earlier king of Israel. And it does get read a lot, and it's in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? This is King David. 300 years before. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I stand, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and light and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness as is light to you. Thematically, Grammatically, almost identical. One in the positive, one in the negative. It sounds familiar because the Holy Spirit speaks only the things of Christ. And he speaks them to a people that are often hard of hearing. And thus he often repeats himself. The same truth... What you see in Psalm 139 and what you see in Amos chapter 9 is the same truth spoken by the same God as the expression of His same unchanging character. And that truth is this, you don't hide from me. You go, man, they certainly have... You say, okay, same truth spoken by the same God about his same unchanging character, and when you boil it all down, what is he saying to both of them is, you can't get away from me. You can't hide from me. You can't run from me. Go to heaven? Fine. Go to Sheol? That's the grave? Fine. Go to the top of the mountain? Fine. Go to the valley? Fine. Go to the bottom of the sea? Fine. You can't hide from me. So what's the difference? Because we would be foolish to say there's not a difference. I mean, there is like there, you know, what's the photo in the photo negative? For those of you that are old enough to have still been around when there were photo negatives. What's the difference? Well, friends, let me tell you something. The difference isn't God. 
is unchanging, immutable. What's the difference? The difference isn't the truth. He is the truth. So truth is not relative. If God is unchanging and immutable, if, if He is not a man that He should lie or the Son of Man that He should change His mind, if, if all good things come down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, if that is truth and He is the way, the truth, and the life, then God doesn't change and neither does truth because it's Him that's true. So if it's not God that changed and it's not truth that changed, then why the change in the tone of the message? And when you've removed every other suspect, the one that's left must be your guy. You know the difference between Psalm 139 and Amos chapter 9? It's not God and it's not what God is saying. It's the audience that is receiving it. That's the difference. To one... The Lord says, no matter where you flee, no matter where you go, I will be there to lead you with my right hand and uphold you with it. And to the other, he says, no matter where you flee and where you go, I will be there to slaughter you. The message is the same. And the message is this. Nothing in, cre nothing in creation. Unfallen angel, fallen angel, or fallen man. Nothing in creation, whether operating alone or teamed up in lawlessness, nothing in creation can undo the Creator. And Paul grabs this idea in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. When he says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And see, people at this point may want to go, you know, Pastor, this is a little, you're a little all over the place because on one minute it's, you know, we're, we're sticking with that. You can't undo God theme here, but on one minute it's, you know, can't undo God in good, and the next minute it's can't undo God in bad. You can't undo God in love, and you can't undo God in justice. I would say yes, if the creation cannot separate itself from the love of God, neither can it separate itself from the hatred of God. It can't. It's incapable. It's finite, and He's infinite. They are the ones that are being held together. He is the one that is holding together. This is one throne that doesn't get stormed. You say, wouldn't it be more convenient since Amos is obviously very much in the negative here? Because they're, like, I cut these down because you could just pick a ton of them. Like, wouldn't it be more convenient, exegetically expedient, uh, for sure, um, you know, to, to let's focus on the wrath ones? And you could even make a decent argument for that. You make a decent argument for preaching the text in front of you as simply as it is. That's fine. We do plenty of that. But the reality is, is the reason I want to go back and forth between how you can't get away from God when He's loving you and you can't get away from God when He's hating you is because I don't have a dog in this fight. That's the unbiased opinion of Scripture. So if I wanted to load it up and be a hellfire and brimstone guy, we could just do all of that, and that would probably be the exegetically more honest approach, but I don't think it would be honest to the fullness of Scripture. At the same time, if I wanted to feel real weird and uncomfortable about what Amos is saying, 
and I don't want to make anybody mad or I don't want to make anybody fidget in their seat, then what I could do is I could make a stack of these verses three pages deep about how you can't get away from God's love and then we could kind of minimize what's going on in Amos. And, and see, that was kind of then. Friends, that, that is a lie. That's a lie. The message is the same. What Paul's saying in Romans about not being able to be separated from the love of God is the same as what is being said in Amos about how they will not be able to hide from him. If they go to the bottom of the sea, he will send the serpent to bite them. I will be there to kill you. Is the same as he was saying to David, no matter where you go, my right hand will uphold you and lead you. Because the truth that lies at the core at it is not the application to an individual. It's the fact that you don't undo God. All of his purposes come to fruition. And that is awesome. For in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8, it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. What does that mean? Well, wow, preach on that for the rest of your life. What does that mean in light of where we're at in Amos chapter 9 and in its parallel section in, in Psalms 139? What does that mean? Okay, for Israel, here's what it means. We'll talk about what it means for Israel. We'll talk about what it means for us, kind of collective, and then what it means for you as an individual. For Israel, what it means is this. There is no God of the unified kingdom and God of the divided kingdoms. Where one's in Jerusalem and the other one's up here in Dan or Bethel. And we used to worship that one, but now we worship this one. And it's actually the same one, but they had it wrong before and now we got it right. They had an understanding that it was supposed to be just the house of David. They had an understanding that it was supposed to be just in Jerusalem. But now we understand that God's different from that. He's the same God, but he was different than we thought he was. And now he's up here. Okay, for Israel, that is not what it means. There is not one God for the unified kingdom and one God for the divided kingdoms. And now you've been enlightened. Instead, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Okay, what does it mean for us? And Israel's about to find this out in the most brutal of fashions, obviously. What does it mean for us? What it means for us today collectively in the Christian world, there is no God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. As though one was wrathful and stern and the other one is loving and soft. The Lord thy God the Lord is one. What does it mean for me and for you as an individual? It means you should be cautious because you might be hearing this truth today unto your discomfort, but if you ignore it, it will be unto your destruction just like theirs. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is both the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's not one or the other. The same God that roared forth from the top of Sinai so that the people begged that they may not hear him again lest they die is the same God that picks up the little child and sets him on his knee. He's also the same one that looks at him and says, you keep this kid from coming to me, you would have been so much better off if they tied a 500-pound millstone around your neck and chunked you in the sea. And you better believe him because he's the same one that was roaring from the top of Sinai when the rocks melted, it said. The same one who was the still small voice speaking to the prophet when God wasn't in the wind and God wasn't in the fire. 
is the same one that will split the heavens like a melon and watch them melt as they burn on the day of his consummation. And Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. I mean, John the Baptist told us in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place at Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Behold the Lamb of God. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And what does the Lamb of God do? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is Jesus Christ yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation chapter 6. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly Clapton wasn't the first guy that came up with this concept. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. What does the lion of the tribe of Judah do? His business be conquering. He's the Lamb of God. His business is sacrifice and taking away the sins of the world. They are eternally one and the same. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. They're eternally one and the same. And friends, if you minimize the sacrificial lamb in favor of maximizing the conquering lion, you will find yourself unredeemed and on the wrong side of that which he comes to conquer. Ask all those Pharisees in the first century in Jerusalem. That's what they were looking for. They didn't want the sacrificial lamb. They wanted the king with a sharp sword on a white horse. And he said, if you don't have both, you'll get neither. You minimize the sacrificial lamb in order to maximize the conquering lion and you will find yourself on the wrong side of what is being conquered. There will be no redemption. There will be no salvation. On the other hand, if you minimize the conquering lion, and let's be honest here, we got an issue in American Christianity today, this is the one. Because when it comes to the conquering, you don't get to pick the easy texts. Amos 9 is what the conquering lion looks like. You don't just get to grab the little snippet that says, and he will reign. This is how the lion conquers. If you minimize the conquering lion in favor of the sacrificial lamb, you will find yourself 
holding to an impotent promise with no ability to conquer death and therefore no salvation. Because according to Scripture, what the conquering lion is conquering is not simply fallen angels and fallen men. He's conquering death and satisfying the wrath of a holy God. You remove that, and the juice ain't worth the squeeze. Don't try to put the lamb on a leash. Don't try to make him what you want him to be. That's what they were doing up in Bethel. That's what they were doing in Dan. Don't try to put the lamb on the leash. Because if you get the actual one, then one day you're going to find yourself on a six-foot leader strapped to a 2,000-pound lion. For the lamb and the lion are eternally one and the same. It's in a split personality disorder. This isn't sometimes he comes one way, sometimes he comes the other. He's always both. Man, he looks at Peter in one moment and says, Peter, who do you say I am? And he says, man, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And he goes, bless you, Simon. This wasn't shown to you by men, it was shown to you by the Holy Spirit. Half a page later, he's looking at Peter going, get behind me, Satan. You have nothing to do with the truth. We already talked about the children. You let them come right here. As a matter of fact, I'll even show you how if you want anything to do with the kingdom, you've got to become like one of these. And if you hinder them from coming to me, you would be better off drowned violently. And it's not the law you have to worry about. It's the lawgiver that you should fear. The lamb and the lion are eternally one and the same. And I think the clearest place that you can see it in a sound bite is in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12 through 17. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, back to this whole scroll that had seven seals on it, that John was so upset because... There was no one in heaven or on earth that could break the seals and open the scroll. And he knows what's in there. What's in there is the consummation of the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so, man, he's weeping, you know. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he may open the scroll. And so then the scroll starts opening. And if you know anything about the narrative, buddy... It is a lion-like conquering scroll. I mean, it's some bad stuff, man. Every time one of these things is cracked open. And we're down almost to the end. The sixth seal. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that has been rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, they're going to try to do what God said they can't do. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne for the wrath of the lion, for the great day of his wrath is come for who can stand except for it doesn't say that what it says is fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb he is eternally both he's never changed there's no reason for him to He's perfect. He's holy. If you're perfect and infinitely holy, why would you change? You would by default be becoming less. You would be changing towards imperfection. It doesn't change. The same God who looked at King David and said, you'll never get away from me. And David went, (sighs) relief is the same God that looked at Israel and said, you'll never get away from me. You can go dig your hole as deep as you want to go, and I'll be there. And in that day, you'll be terrified of the wrath of the Lamb and be begging for the mercy of the lion, and you will not find it. For the day of salvation will have missed you. Friend, that day is not today. It's coming. It's coming. There is a day where he will hear the plea of sinners no more. But that day is not today. Today is the day of grace. Today is the day of mercy. Today is the day. Today is the day when if you will but repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, not just as Savior, but as Lord, if you will repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ, the lion will conquer on your behalf through the sacrifice which the Lamb has made. Come to Christ today. Because I don't know what tomorrow holds. But I know what he's offering right now. That those who seek knock and that those who, those who seek find and that those that knock the door is open to them. That's now. Let him speak to you the way he spoke to David. Not like he would speak through Amos to Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. You're truly an awesome and holy God. How can you be both in the same? Lion and lamb, sacrificed and conqueror. Lord, that you may be glorified and that we may have the joy of being the ransomed. Of being moved from enemy 
to child. Lord, we pray that we pray that, that concept, that that word would, would, would draw the lost to you. We pray it would sanctify and encourage your people, particularly in times of great personal difficulty. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.